Hi friends, it's Sarah again. Thank you for joining me in part 5, as we continue our exploration into the poltergeist phenomena with some slightly more paranormal theories, like the stone tape theory and the role of ideomotor movements as a gateway to the subconscious. Sleep paralysis is one of those things that I feel like it's kind of on the fringe between a physical phenomena and a psychological phenomena, as most things are, obviously. The brain is in the body. But sleep paralysis is a temporary period of bodily paralysis that occurs in this kind of fringe state between sleep and wakefulness. So individuals experiencing it will be fully aware of their surroundings but unable to move their limbs or their body. And this paralysis is often accompanied by terrifying hallucinations, feelings of dread and fear, suffocating sensations, and the feeling of an accompanying presence. Now, some people are more prone to sleep paralysis, and it seems to have a bit of an overlap with lucid dreaming. I think because it hinges on snapping into awareness in this the same stage of sleep in REM sleep. I believe, uh, this may just be anecdotal, but I believe that people who train themselves to lucid dream tend to experience sleep paralysis um, a little more often than others. But nevertheless, it doesn't matter the cause, even if you consciously triggered it. There are certain forms that these experiences usually take. So looming humanoid figures are extremely common with sleep paralysis, as well as the feeling of these figures kind of pressing down on you with an invisible force and seeming to squeeze the air from your lungs. Now, obviously, parallels have been drawn between the experiences of sleep paralysis and alien abduction. There are so many overlaps between the feelings that we associate with alien abduction the idea of being somehow anesthetized so you are present but unable to move and then it feels as though you are examined by a a being an entity that is extraterrestrial or at the very least not human in both encounters, in sleep paralysis and UFO encounters, there is a feeling of dread and imminent harm, even if no actual bodily harm is actually done in the end. UFO encounters are often recounted through dreams. The information kind of trickles back through dreams by a person kind of in the safety of their bed. And the reason, one of the reasons the stories are so persuasive is that they really draw on this very human fear of transforming the home somewhere that we should feel safe, transforming the bed, the area where we should feel at rest and most protected into a seat of fear and paranoia. Now, sleep paralysis is a condition which is associated and shares some similarities with atonia, which is this effect of a loss of muscle control when falling asleep or waking. Now, I feel like most of us have probably experienced this at some point, whether we've experienced full-blown sleep paralysis or not. I haven't. I know I have experienced this times where I feel like I should be able to move, but I can't, and that's Atonia. Now, normally, we are not consciously aware during these moments. This drop-off of motor control is a normal part of the sleep cycle. Otherwise, 
you know, your body would never be able to switch off to go to sleep. But with abnormal sleep behaviors, we may become aware during this time of no motor control when ordinarily we shouldn't be aware. And we may feel that we're kind of trapped in an unresponsive shell. As we've mentioned, these abnormal behaviors also disrupt REM sleep. So the time in our sleep cycle responsible for our most vivid and sensorily intense dreams. With sleep paralysis, we can become trapped in a kind of waking nightmare where we're physically aware but unable to respond as the boundaries between being awake and being asleep start to blur. Now, something that is key with sleep paralysis is that these hallucinations feel and appear very distinct from regular dreams. So, in fact, there's not this comforting feeling of, oh, this is all a dream to fall back on. The hallucinations, as they're more aptly called than dreams, fall into very specific categories, such as hallucinations of an intruder, in which there is the perception of a presence and an associating feeling of danger. There are chest pressure hallucinations or incubus hallucinations, which often accompany intruder hallucinations. Then there are the so-called out-of-body sensations, where people often perceive themselves as flying above their sleeping forms. Already we can see the threads of what we could call a poltergeist. So an individual prone to sleep paralysis hallucinations might repeatedly feel a dangerous presence in their household that they aren't able to physically locate. These disturbances obviously occur at night when most people are tending to be sleeping and when most poltergeist victims report being awoken by their disturbances, they tend to start up in the night and they will wake people up. People report often being woken up by banging or explosions in the night. The same kind of start feeling that we feel if we, if we find ourselves suddenly awake in the middle of the night. So they feel like they may have been suddenly forced into wakefulness by an unknown cause. They may also feel themselves seemingly held down by an invisible force. So a lot of times in poltergeist cases, people experience feeling like they're being held down or feeling like they're being pressed down upon by a force they can't see, but by something that stops short of hurting them, but they feel like it could. And reality is it could just be that their muscles have given out on them so they may feel themselves being pulled up into the air but this could be a facet of a sleep paralysis hallucination not only this but again like did sleep paralysis is known to have links with certain other medical conditions and many medical conditions which could add to these feelings of persecution and invasion such as being linked with anxiety disorders and ptsd and all of this can sort of feed on itself, lead on to this cycle of ever worsening levels of, the, of insomnia, poor sleep health, and therefore episodes of sleep paralysis, and the resulting waking hallucinations that come from being lacking in sleep. It is also known to be associated with people with disassociative traits. And again, although I count myself as extremely lucky, as I haven't ever experienced it in my lifetime, it is common, it is thought that as many as 8% of adults will experience it at some point in their lifetime. 
I hope for people that regularly suffer with this, having a term for them will help a little bit as humans crave explanations. And I feel like if this were happening to someone in the medieval period, I'd rather believe I think that it was a third party haunting me, like a poltergeist plaguing me, than though that my own mind could be so horrifically mean and self-sabotaging. Now we're going to move on to some more theories. These tend to be more on the paranormal and spiritualist side, but as you may have gathered, I'm less interested in here in finding the objective, factual truth, whatever that really means for us, than finding some of the ways we can find meaning in this. So now I'm going to go over some of the primary ideas of those building their theories up of spirituality and parapsychology. I'm going to start with dowsing or dowsing and the stone tape theory. Now, Thomas Charles Lethbridge, he was a Cambridge educated archaeologist and by the sounds of it, like an Indiana Jones style figure where he was an explorer. He's a parapsychologist, as I said, archaeologist. And like me, you may not have heard of him, but you've probably heard of some of the ideas that he helped to popularize and advocate for. He wrote very widely. He published over 20 books in his lifetime. And some of the concepts that he advocated for have just passed into accepted ideas for paranormal investigators or parapsychologists. So dowsing is one of those. Dowsing is a kind of pseudoscientific divination, specifically utilised most often for finding underground water or underground formations and structures, such as building remains. I first became aware of it as a child, growing up and watching the TV of the late 90s, early 2000s, and the kind of interest in archaeology of the time. So in my eyes, dowsing and archaeology like went hand in hand to the extent I, until very recently, associated water dowsing and um, with the geophysiological scans, with the geophys scans done by the teams of archaeologists on Time Team when they're trying to map out the potential formations of the building beneath the earth where they thought it might be often there would be an individual who was skilled in dowsing who would come along and they would use this to help confirm oh yes there's a structure underneath the ground here oh it's it goes along here and then use that to start the dig so i think i must have had an idea that they were in completely kind of different spheres of thought but dowsing and the image of a dowsing rod and someone using one is familiar to me in a way that most of what comes later isn't, hence me wanting to start here. Dowsing is a is an ancient process, so I didn't become aware of it in the 90s because it originated in the 90s. No, it just happened to be popular at that time, but still enjoys popularity with a wide range of people. And the basic idea is that someone skilled in dowsing will take a dowsing rod, often made from a naturally branching twig, but you can also have specifically made metal ones that are supposed to be resonant to frequencies underneath the ground. And the idea is that you walk around an area and if water or ore deposits or whatever is sought is detected underground by the dowser, the dowsing rod will move and turn. Now, so far, the attempts to replicate this movement in lab conditions have been inconclusive. And so the link between underground water 
whether there's any kind of energy expelled by it or detectable from it that can be measured by a dowsing rod is still very much up in the air. But there have been many cases of the rod seeming to move outside of the conscious movement on the part of the dowser, but this has been explained by many as a facet of what we call ideomotor movements. So it's the same kind of muscle movement caused by subconscious mental activity that will cause the planchette on a Ouija board to move without any individual consciously controlling its movement. Modern proponents of dowsing tend to lean into this idea, confident that it's an ability that even a newcomer can have success with, with practice if they just relax. For the new scientist, Michael Brooks spent some time with a Mr. John Baker, who is a dowser specialising in dowsing for hidden archaeological structures, as we were just talking. So his explanation for a layman's success in this practice, because Michael Brooks, Mr. Brooks, had success with dowsing. He had instance where the dowsing rod would move seemingly outside of his control. And Baker's explanation for this was that by relaxing and suppressing all of your conscious rationalizations, you can allow your brain to tune into a kind of energy associated with the buried structure. So your brain then tuned in seems to kind of bypass the conscious part of your brain to move the rod. So it is coming from your brain, but it is coming from an unconscious part of your brain. And that is something that the proponents and detractors seem to agree on, that it is the brain moving the rod, not the structure or the water itself. That's why it's so dependent on there being a human agent in it. You have to have a human dowser. It's not possible to just have a dowsing rod in isolation to behave in the same kind of way because it relies on this brain. Now this is just one of the structures, as we've mentioned, that we may interpret as the unconscious influence of our brains. So as we mentioned, Ouija boards, like dowsing, represent one of the ways in which the supposedly paranormal experience can be had by anyone, as most have seen at least partial success if they attempt either of the two, if they attempt to use a Ouija board or if they attempt to use a dowsing rod. Now, there is something to be said in both cases that success in these areas relies on a positive force. So to be successful at dowsing, you expect a movement to happen rather than the absence of movement. With Ouija, you expect a movement to happen rather than no movement. Like I said, success in this area relies on there being movement of any kind. So it's very much a how long is a piece of string kind of argument, what counts as a movement, what doesn't. That judgment call comes down to the person who has their investment in getting this to work. I think it's really, really interesting. I don't want you to take from this that I think it's all bullshit and that no one should do it. I think it's incredibly interesting, but I think as well it's important to be aware of just how powerful the brain can be at kind of fooling itself. Changing track just a little bit, Lethbridge also popularised a related theory called the stone tape theory. It was attributed to him, um, shared lineage with a body of paranormal thought that preceded him, and that basically 
speculated that ghosts and haunting apparitions are analogous to kind of tape recording. So this is a very SPR idea of what a haunting or a poltergeist might be, that they represent mental impressions formed during emotional or traumatic events that are then projected in the form of energy. And then this huge body of energy can, in effect, be recorded onto rocks or materials or items, and that these impressions can be replayed and can be viewed under certain conditions. As I've already hinted at, it could be easier understood as a kind of child of the SPR popularized theory of place memory which is exactly what it sounds like. The idea that certain places and certain materials may be able to store memory of the events and lives that happened within or near them. As you can imagine, this would help explain traditional hauntings, which are usually, but not exclusively, geographically bound to a very specific area. And whether you believe the impressions to be interactive or not, place memory could help us understand the poltergeist. In particular, as as we've already discussed, poltergeists seem to disproportionately affect people in unhappy living conditions, often people experiencing poverty or trauma, and they tend to happen in places with a high turnover of individuals. So they are, you know, one in a long string of people who lived in this house and probably lived in this house and had honestly a bad time of it. They're most likely under more stress proportionally than their richer counterparts. And so they're most likely to give off this kind of high emotional energy if this energy comes out in forms of peaked emotions, whether good or bad there's likely to be a lot of emotions kicking around in this air. Under stress, those people living in this area would also be more likely to interpret any kind of subconscious response as a paranormal one, as, as we said, brains under stress try whatever they can to make sense of what is going on around them and tend to, in a variety of ways, kind of create the idea of an outside force imposing itself upon our lives rather than it coming from the interior. Now it's related to psychometry and the theory that one can train oneself to be able to sense the aura around objects and that by touching these items we can know about their history. And again poltergeists are very object driven most of their expanded powers come from when they are able to transport or translate objects from place to place they're very object based but the fact that this idea of you know place memory object memory some sort of materialistic memory is so embedded in a variety of theories even if you may not have the words for them even if you did not know of the phrase stone tape theory you will know of some kind of idea that places have a memory. And it shows again that human beings, or at least many of us, are really desperate for some proof that human life extends just beyond the years that we physically live on the planet. And this idea that objects would soak up and record something about the human lives around them leans on the fact that we inherently believe that a human story is valuable and worthy of being told. 
we don't tend to imagine that a barn would have a place memory of the cattle that lived their lives within it, but we do seem to think that a cottage may hold some sort of knowledge, some sort of truth about the families that inhabited it, the human families. Now, I agree that the human story is inherently valuable. I think it's essential, but I think that this kind of thought can make up kind of the bed of a river and little senses, really tiny experiences, little tiny instances of deja vu, a little unconscious twitch of your muscles, a chill that you register at that point. Drop by drop, these little experiences kind of fall into this riverbed and are swept along in this need to form stories, this need to fit it all into a puzzle, into a picture, into something that chronicles the human experience that we value. We need to find meaning. We want to see stories in what we feel as it has a dual purpose of one, giving inherent meaning to existence, so making existence something worthy of record and intrinsically valuable, and by giving us a place to exteriorize all the negative feelings we may experience in life and to weave them into the story of someone else's existence that we're only viewing an impression of. So if we are able to exteriorize all the bad things about life as we're currently experiencing it as simply the leftovers, the emotional impression of someone else's life, not ours, it's just another way to get through each day just a little bit easier. And I think it's absolutely natural and absolutely essential. But again, I think it shouldn't be discounted when we're talking about poltergeists. It's something that people should keep in mind. Now, I could go on about this forever. I could continue to waffle on, but I'm gonna move on to a slightly different angle. But again, keeping with this idea of exteriorizing certain facets of ourselves. Thank you for joining me in part five of the poltergeist story. This one's a long one, but we are nearly there. Stay tuned for the final part where we take a look into some juicy parapsychological theories, such as Jung's exteriorization phenomena, thought forms, and finally talk about the black monk of Pontefract. In the meantime, find me on Twitter under Weird Horizon and wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>